Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March the 24th, 2022. It's Biography Day today. Earlier today, I interviewed NPR's uh, Planet Money co-host Mary Childs has a really interesting new book out about Bill Gross called The Bond King. A couple of weeks ago, I had Peter Osnos, a New York publishing legend on the show, talking about um, his non-fictional uh, version of George Soros. He's edited a, a lovely book called A Life in Full, Survivor, billionaire, speculator, philanthropist, philosopher, political activist, nemesis of the far right, global citizen. George Soros has certainly had many lives, continues to have many lives. And today we're doing another biography of a man who indeed, like Soros, has many lives. Um, it's Stuart Brand. Uh, the book is called Whole Earth. Uh, its subtitle is indeed the Many Lives of Stuart Brand. Its author is uh, my old friend John Markov, uh, iconic tech journalist at the New York Times, not there anymore full time, but uh, continues to do a little bit of writing, and a man who perhaps more than anyone else has come to cover uh, Silicon Valley. I have to admit, John, that I wasn't surprised with this book. It seems as if your whole life and your whole writing career um, in a kind of teleological manner, has led to Stuart Brand and his many lives. Is that fair? I think that that's fair, Andrew. You know, the reason I, I picked this up after I left the Times is uh, I've always been puzzled by why Silicon Valley appeared when it did and where it did. And I think Stuart was part of that puzzle, and that was one of the reasons. You know, it, you know as, as it, the title says, many lives, but that was one of his lives, and it intrigued me. Uh, the the book is uh, about those many lives. Uh, the best quote I think about Stuart is from his brother. It's a rather uh, tragic quote. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, Stuart has been or is trapped on the cutting edge. Um, explain what you think his brother meant and how Stuart has always been on the cutting edge. And and perhaps before that, you might just say briefly who Stuart Brand is, because not everyone will know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Stuart Brand grew up in the Midwest, but he arrived in California to go to school, actually following his brother, Mike, um, who is the one who made that quote in the 1950s. And then uh, went into the army and came back to North Beach and sort of was a bridge between the beat movement and the hippies in San Francisco. And then in 1968, started this publication called The Whole Earth Catalog, which touched the nerve uh, with the young generation in America. Ultimately, in three years, they sold um, three million copies. It became the National Book Award winner in 72. And so he's mostly known for that, but then he went on to do a number of things after that. And uh, his there, there's a bunch of stuff packed into that trapped on the edge uh, comment from his brother. Um, I think if some of it's familial, uh, Stuart has all, had basically um, left the family. He comes from an extended and close family, uh, and he sort of walked away from it. I think some of that is coming out of that quote. But also, um, he he's referring to the fact that Stuart would sort of move from one thing to the next and put the other thing behind him, whatever it was, uh, that at five-year intervals, he would sort of move on. 
And that was the edge. And he was leaving behind uh, what he had done previously. You're not the first person, John, to present Stuart Brand as the the public face of not just Silicon Valley, but the whole uh, technology revolution. Um, Fred Turner, who I I think he still teaches at Stanford, he did teach at Stanford, wrote a classic called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, in which he made Brand the central character. It it sort of turned Brand uh, into an iconic figure, particularly for critics of technology. Do you think Turner got Brand right? Uh, Fred and I were working on our uh, our books. I had an earlier book called What the Dormouse Said, which also also dealt with Stuart. And we were working on them at the same time. And we do have different views on Stuart, his contribution, and the timing of certain things, uh, some of the ideological questions. Um, uh, close on th- some things, different on others. Uh, Fred helped me a lot when I was uh, working on this biography. Um, but our perspectives are slightly different. Does Brand have a worldview? I mean, this is the question that I think everyone will scratch their heads over while reading your incredibly well-researched and well-written book. Um, Is there a way, apart from him always being on this cutting edge and perhaps being a rather unhappy character, always searching for himself, I'm not sure if he's happier now than he was when he was a young man. Your your book reveals that. But is there an ideology at the heart of Brand? So I think there's an arc of an ideology. Um, I think he can't, he's come early to various things and tended to pick them up, wear them, if you will. Um, you know, the earliest flirtation he had during Stanford were with the libertarians. Um, he was briefly a devotee of Ayn Rand, but very briefly. And some of that actually flows into the um, whole of catalog. I, I think there was an ideology in that that was that had threads of libertarianism, but not in a pure capitalist sense, in something more of a com- communitarian sense, if that's possible. Um, you know, he was uh, first v- uh, very influenced uh, by Buckminster Fuller, the, his sort of systems engineering approach, but then later set it down uh, and traded Fuller for Bateson. And I think in a sense, he's, he basically stumbled upon, uh, through psychedelics or whatever, this idea of planetary consciousness and that's been a continuing thread. You know what? And then, so let me come up to the present. So where is he now? 2009, he famously broke with the environmental movement, which he'd been sort of instrumental in creating the 1970s environmental movement. And, uh, you know, he, that was seen as sort of a conservative turn. Um, he, he's, he worked for Shell, right? As a consultant. <laughs> he consulted for Shell. He was on these big oil, oil derricks and, and didn't find that to be uh, hypocritical. Um, you know, his argument and Schwartz's argument was that it was uh, valuable to have hard over environmentalists, which is what they referred to themselves as inside the belly of the beast, if you will. I don't get the sense that you share that position, that you probably think there is an element of hypocrisy there. Well, that's an interesting point, uh, Andrew, because, you know, when I started this project, I found there were already two dozen books that dealt with bits and pieces, uh, more than two dozen uh, books. You know, everybody used a bit of Stuart's biography to make a point about culture or technology or politics. And I actually attempted to sort of come at, and including me, I mean, I I did that in Dormouse. And this time I tried to let his story speak for itself as much as that's possible. I, I... I know what you mean. I was uh, 
you know, I was a hard over, I grew up as a Sierra Club, uh, uh, you know, a Sierra Club kid. I was uh, sort of a hard over environmentalist in that sense of the word. And so it was difficult for me at some point to, to follow Stuart everywhere. I think we were, we were different on a number of points, but I, I, you know, I was, I was trying not to be judgmental in that sense. I was trying to report his life uh, as openly as I could. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how closely I got there uh, to that. The character who, uh, or the word that comes up when I think of uh, Brand and, and certainly your book on him is Zelig, um, in the sense that he always seems to be there. He's not really always the center of things, or at least because he's not a centered man, he's all edge. And of course, I think he popularized even the term edge, but he's always there or thereabouts. He has a, this remarkable quality of, of of continuing to show up even now when he's in his eighties. Uh, you know, that's, in fact, I used the word zealot like to describe him in Dormouse. And then I thought about that a lot. And I ultimately felt that it, it falls apart in one sense. I mean, you can use a zealot in, in the sense that Stuart has done all these different things, but the zealot notion also includes the shape shifting thing. And there is one continuity and there's a through line in Stuart's life that I think made me walk away from the Zelic idea. And that is when he was uh, eight years old, uh, he took this thing called the Conservation Pledge that was published in Outdoor Life magazine uh, about the responsibility that he had as an American citizen to protect the resources, the air, the water, the natural resources of the planet. And that has been consistent through everything he's done. And he's still at that point. We may differ on means, but the goal is been consistent. So I tried to find another term. I played around with the high IQ Forrest Gump. Yeah, I thought of Forrest Gump as well, which is, I think was borrowed. I don't know which, I think Forrest Gump came after Zelig. One was borrowed from the other, I'm sure. Yeah. So anyway, I, so I think that fits a little better. But he's not as innocent as Forrest Gump. That's probably true. Fair enough. (laughs) enough. I, I was reading your book, um, uh, in parallel with another new, interesting new book by the Cambridge University historian Gary Gerstle called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. And Gerstle's really interesting on neoliberalism in the sense that he doesn't like so many people just situate it on the, on the, on the right. He sees it as quintessentially America, and he positions it both on the, lo- the right and the left, this, um, this obsession against authority. And I was thinking of your book while reading Gerstle. And then, of course, within Gerstle, as Stuart Brand always tends to do, he popped up. Uh, so I wonder whether there is something quintessentially neoliberal in his rejection of authority about Brand. One of the things that I most enjoyed about your book was I didn't quite realize how aggressively he reacted against the military and that how sort of shaped his early life after graduating from Stanford. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, he was, he came in as a pure anti-communist because everybody was an anti-communist. And then he basically came out as, as a pox on the, both their houses. And he associated with what uh, was referred to as the psychedelic side of the anti-war movement. So, uh, which was Ken Kesey crowd. But um, so here's a question. So that I struggled with that a lot um, because certainly there are neoliberal threads that run through Brand's thinking. Um, where I have trouble putting him narrowly into a neoliberal camp is, for example, in um, uh, his his uh, his, la- his last book on uh, whole earth discipline, where he breaks with the environmental movement. 
this isn't really... the salt summer, is this is um Oh yeah, yeah. no, no. Bef before that, in 2009, there was a book called Whole Earth Discipline. Yeah. And that was basically where he endorsed nuclear power, GMO then food. cities, nuclear power, yeah. transgenic crops, restored wildlands, geoengineering. Yeah, a lot of hot buttons there. And he 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 doesn't he doesn't really sort of push it up to the to the top in that book. But you if you if you read through that carefully, which I did, the only way you can get there and hit his mind is through a strong government. He he acknowledges right. that private corporations are not going to solve these problems. And so, you know, Stewart is a he identifies himself as a conservative, but he's a conservative who um, cannot stand to read the Wall Street Journal because he's horrified by their editorial page. So what kind of conservative is that? I actually ended up deciding that he was closest politically to Jerry Brown, who, of course, he worked in his administration. So where do you put Brown. Clearly, there are elements of neoliberalism and Brown, but he's something else, isn't he? Yeah. And it, well, he's a Californian radical conservative, I guess. Um, the <laughs> yeah, other thing that comes out of the book and Mike's, my knowledge of, um, of Brand is this obsession with being a good ancestor. I had the British philosopher Roman Krasnarich on the show a couple of months ago. He, he's written an interesting book called The Good ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking. But what what Krasnarich argues, and so many others, particularly in Europe, is that being a good ancestor is probably incompatible with capitalism. Brand doesn't really believe that, does he? No, I, I, although he's very much uh, in line with the good ancestor. I mean, that is, you know, he he was a co-founder with Danny Hillis of the Lo Clock of the Long Now, the Long Now Foundation, and that whole notion. The, everything they're trying to do in that project is basically turn social responsibility on its side and and create responsibility across generations. So that's completely in line with that. But he but wants to have his, as always with Stuart, he wants to have his cake and eat it. I mean, he believes that's compatible with capitalism. So many other progressives don't. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think he, he, he would not agree with them. I think he probably feels that um, capitalism uh, is workable with guardrails. Um, you know, and and that does that make that's not really neoliberalism, is it? Either it's 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 a Brownian notion. It's so, Brandian, John. It's not it's Brownian. Brandian. We need <laughs> a new Brandian. word. Brand, yeah. Brandian. He's certainly a remarkable character. And John Markov's new book, Whole Earth, which is this wonderful. But I think I think we can call it, John, a, a, a loving biography. Uh, can you? I mean, you don't entirely love him, but you mostly love him. Yeah. Well, so. Um, I was fascinated by the, his his adventures and the directions he's gone. Many of them touched on things that that I sort of stumbled across somewhat after he did. So I think probably love is a little a little strong, but I find him fascinating. Um, it was a treat to spend a year and a half talking to him. And you talk, how many conversations? You had about eighty conversations with him. Seventy six. Usually they lasted half a day. Um, must have got sick of each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> the book, uh, you, you know, you you the book is uh, a, a wonderful read. Uh, the whole earth, uh, it's called Whole Earth: The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. I'm talking with the legendary J New York Times journalist and writer John Markov. John, we're going to take a quick break, and then I want to come back and talk more specifically about Brand and tech and Silicon Valley and how we're going to get out of the hole we seem to be in. So we're back in about sixty seconds with John Markov, the author of Whole Earth. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching 
or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. I'm back with John Markov, the author of Whole Earth, a, a, a semi-loving biography, shall we say, of Stuart Brand. John, you, um, you dedicate the book to Doug Engelbart, um, who was, like everybody else, a friend of, of, of Brand. What's the big deal about Engelbart? Why dedicate the book to him? And it seems in some ways as if his spirit runs through both your book, your work, and indeed Brand's life. I think that's true. So Engelbart, um, I've written about Engelbart in various ways in my last three books. Um, uh, and, and Engelbart... Uh, was a seminal figure in Silicon Valley. Um, he basically came back from World War II with this Vannevar Bush notion of building uh, these machines that uh, could augment human intelligence. The ironic thing to me that I pointed to in Machines of Love and Grace, which is my last book, is that the same year that John McCarthy started the AI lab at Stanford on the other side of campus, Doug started a laboratory focused on intelligence augmentation, which basically led directly to personal computing. Uh, the stuff that Engelbart did in his lab went first to Xerox PARC and then was borrowed by both Apple and Microsoft to make the modern computer world. And he even called it in 1962, intelligence augmentation. So you had this wonderful dichotomy, IA and AI on both sides of the campus. And uh, so I, I was, I was uh, you know, I followed Engelbart very carefully. Um, he was a big part of sort of what became Silicon Valley, uh, the, the sort of the prehistory of the valley if you will. And Brand was one of the first people to discover him. And, and so that was interesting and significant to me. You, um, you know, the couple of old friends of mine, many times guests on the show, Franklin Foa and John Taplin. Uh, John Taplin's Move Fast and Break Things was particularly critical of Brand. What is it about Brand, you think, that brings out the ire of tech critics like Foa and Taplin? 
Well, so th that was interesting. Uh, those were recent books that dealt that grabbed a little bit of Stuart's biography. So here we are in 2016, 2017. Um, uh, Trump is elected. And at the same time, I don't know if these are entirely related, the zeitgeist, the national zeitgeist on the valley really turns very quickly from Silicon Valley being able to do no wrong to Silicon Valley being able to do no right. And it just startled me to see these two books published in 2017, both start with Stuart in, in different ways. I mean, Foyer, uh, who has the longer description of, of brand, uh, basically draws this through line from the whole earth catalog to Silicon Valley and sort of suggests that Stuart is the Valley's original sin. I think Taplin was a little bit more nuanced and I actually agree with him. Uh, he distinguished what he called, uh, the, the, I don't know if he used them, but he, these words precisely, but technological utopians from digital libertarian. And he, he basically argues that the PayPal mafia was a fundamental break from the original idealism, digital idealism of brand at all uh, in, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And so it was, it was the PayPal mafia who led to the dot-com era of Silicon Valley and saw he saw that as fundamentally different. And I actually am very sympathetic to that perspective. But um, I think I have a different perspective than both of them on Brand's role. Uh, and I, I don't know if you want me to go into that, but- Of I, course, yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the, I think sort of in terms of Stuart Brand's scholarship, one of the things that I stumbled across in, in my research that I think is significant um, is a lost journal. Um, both Fred Turner and I worked with the journals that Stuart had given to the Stanford Library in 2000, and he gave a bunch of stuff up to a certain point, except for one journal, which he, he has this cluttered office on Gatefied Road in Sausalito, and he dragged this journal out at one point, and it was an account of a project that he had uh, sort of run in 1967, which was a great failure right before his great success, which was the Whole Earth Catalog. And he, he basically, for a half a year, um, his, his mentor at that point was a man by the name of Dick Raymond, who had created uh, what I would call Silicon Valley's first incubator. I remember Silicon Valley was not named till 71, but all the forces that would shape the valley were alive and well in the second half of the 60s. And so in reading this, and so this account of, of this effort by Stewart, uh, he had been commissioned by Raymond to create an educational technology fair at the San Mateo County Fairgrounds. And he tried to raise money to launch this effort, spent about six months with it, worked with some kids from San Francisco State who were classic sort of new leftist Maoist sympathizers and ended up with a complete antipathy to the new left forever as a result of that, which I found humorous. Um, but uh, that project failed. But in reading that journal, I, I realized, realized a couple of things. You know, Stuart is, we talked about Stuart being on the edge. And it's really striking that at that point in time, 1967, summer of 1967, almost all of Stuart's friends were heading off to the land to create communes. And so this is this floating upstream thing. Stuart instead shows up in Menlo Park, California with the idea of letting his technology happen in this place. Now, how is it that Stuart Brand sensed that there was something afoot there? For whatever reason, he showed up right in the center of the area that would become Silicon Valley a few short years later. And at the same time, the other thing that appears from this journal is how close he was to, to Engelbart during that period. He was basically trying to recruit Engelbart to exhibit at the educational technology uh, fair that he was trying to create. And, and Engelbart was trying to basically seduce Brand to sort of join his augmented human in intellect project. 
Um, and Stuart, in a way, I can see it. Stuart remembers none of this, but I can see it in the journal um, that he became something of an acolyte. You know, by this time, Ken Kesey had moved back to Eugene, Oregon to work on a dairy. And Stuart went up there at one point and he was he was lecturing on computers on the Kesey farm. Um, which really is really quite extraordinary. And I can see bits and pieces of that. And so so what I realized, so if you ask Stuart, uh, you know, the subtitle of the Whole Earth Catalog is Access to Tools. And you say, where does that come from, Stuart? And he'll say, well, I was just channeling Buckminster Fuller, who, of course, is famous for saying, if you want to change the world, give somebody a tool and teach them how to use it. But what I realized is it came, that notion of tools at that point came both from Fuller and, and from Engelbart. And Engelbart, of course, was working on developing the what would become the universal tool, the personal computer. Of course, Steve Jobs. Yeah, I mean, Steve Jobs essentially pickpocketed it. Is that yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Well, he, 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 yes, and so did Gates, for that matter. And you know, they, Gates was very honest about that, that they borrowed this technology from Xerox. But Xerox had basically evolved it from Engelbart. You know, Jobs called the personal computer, a bicycle for the mind. And that's the pure expression of Engelbart's idea, I think, or purest expression of Engelbart's idea. But my point is that I think that the, the, the sort of the notion that somehow that Stuart Brand and the catalog led to Silicon Valley has things exactly backwards. What happened was these forces that were coming into play that created the valley helped launch the whole earth catalog. And the whole earth catalog went out to have an an impact on an entire generation of young Americans. Remember, there were 3 million copies of that book sold in three years. So it's, it was, I want to change the context or the framing of the catalog from this sort of, you know, back to the land barnacle to this pro-technology. Remember, it was pre-digital, pre but pro-technology worldview that had a huge influence on a generation of Americans in the 1960s and 1970s, which I don't think is the current framing of the whole earth catalog. I mean, the whole Earth catalog, some people joke that it was Google before Google. It was essentially a, a, a print version of links. It didn't have a center. Again, it was all edge. Do you think there's something psychological about the whole Earth catalog, which could have only come out of somebody like Stuart Brand, who himself didn't or doesn't seem to have that center, is all edge? Yeah, so... so one of the things that I discovered about Stuart, which I don't think I, don't think I sort of described clearly enough in the book, but he is the world's most complete bookworm. I was startled. Yeah, you, do, you do cover that in the book. Okay, yeah. so, so, but it's just, you know, if you, if you want to frame him, he's a bookworm. He was always a bookworm. You know, he, uh, that, that is the heart of Stuart. He's extremely well-read. Um, he has a large personal library and he can describe every book in, in his library. You know, the irony, John, is you wouldn't expect it because he doesn't come across often in that kind of, Yes, I agree. Professorial, erudite way. Yeah, I agree with you. But he is very well read, and and it was startling to me. Uh, but what about his mental state? To me, reading this, I never realized that he suffered a great deal of depression, a lack of self confidence. Do you think he's ever grown up in his life, or is the Stuart Brand today still essentially the remarkably energetic Stuart Brand who showed up at Stanford sixty years ago? Yeah, so he's he's evolved. Many people told me that Stuart, after his second marriage to Ryan Phelan, was the nicer Stuart. So yeah. it took some of the rough edge. And off you of you you definitely touch on that in the book. Yeah, he was seen as cold and aloof, and I wouldn't call him a bully, but he was definitely kind of you know he came out of the 
he came out of the army as an officer and he had, you know, it's kind of strange in a counterculture kind of situation. He had that kind of, he was, a, you know, he, he was, he, I think he was a reasonably effective manager, not in a business sense of the world. But, you know, he was, he was almost never working in a for-profit setting. Everything else was always some sort of a crusade or a nonprofit. I mean, he wasn't, an, he, what he comes across to me, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, it doesn't come across as particularly happy. And I guess that connects also with his, uh, with his association with psychedelics. Do you think that changed him in any way? Yeah, I think that his experience with psychedelics and his depression, I mean, it, I don't understand depressive personalities well enough to say Stuart fit this way or, for, fit, fit this way or that way, but he took during that period between 62 and 69 a lot of psychedelics. So I don't think there's any... Yeah, you have a piece book. actually in Letab from the book, um, The Logistical Challenges of a Supersized acid test on the merry pranksters trips festival it's quite a read that and that that section of the book is amazing yeah so you know and also his first his first you know he he stumbled into this organization that was started by some silicon well remember we're pre-silicon valley but some stanford and stanford research institute and ampex engineers who believed there was this connection between creativity and lsd and he was one of their first subjects he paid $500 to have this one day experience, which involved two oral doses of LSD and perhaps a third dose by injection. Um, a, a little bit, I mean, I've talked to the people who were there and they have differing accounts. Stuart doesn't think he was injected with LSD, but one of the people who was one of the people running the experiment said that they gave injections of LSD to the people who were particularly difficult to break down. They wanted to break down defenses and barriers and Stuart apparently was a bit of a tough nut. Um, but you know, then he he went on and and experimented with with all kinds of things, uh, including nitrous oxide and, and things like that. I mean, he was using that as kind of a, a on the job crutch for a while at the Holy of Catalog, and he got extremely depressed, even suicidal. He was unhappy with his marriage, um, and managed to get out of it ultimately by leaving his marriage and and shutting down the Holy of Catalog. I mean, he attached him. He created this rocket ship. I mean the the, the whole of catalog took off and he, he was just uh, he was overwhelmed and uh, wanted to get out of the project after a year because it was just driving him crazy. Each one had to be bigger and bigger and better than the next. And he was chained to this thing that he'd created and uh, he, he walked away from it. Basically, it's a difficult man. I mean, it's interesting. I didn't realize that um, he had some affinity with John Steinbeck. We did a uh, we did a show last year with William Souders, written a wonderful book, a biography of, of John Steinbeck, who, like Stuart Brand, went to Stanford. And like Brand, is hard to categorize. Um, and like Brand has also had a life full of ups and downs emotionally and otherwise. It's curious. Yeah, no, he was definitely a fan of Steinbeck. And, 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 and more to the point, I mean, Steinbeck pushed him toward biobiology. Um, in a sense of uh, the, the the biologist that and, uh, and Steinbeck's group were kind of merry pranksters before they were merry pranksters, right? Uh, yes, and I guess there's I don't know this history well enough, but there was a connection between Steinbeck's family and the Murphys who created Esalon, and Stuart, of course, was around at the founding of Esalon, and that that sort of that big sur culture uh, that was bubbling down there that involved photography and you know yeah and i didn't even realize that i didn't know he began life as a as a as a wannabe photographer so there's so much to him you you mentioned earlier john that um 
that the zeitgeist has changed in terms of Silicon Valley. A lot of it has been associated with various scandals in tech, one associated with the MIT Media Lab. Jeffrey Epstein shows up. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, it's revealed, had quite a close relationship with um, with John Brockman, who was uh, who, who features quite heavily in the book as Stuart Brand's uh, literary agent. I'm not saying that Silicon Valley leads naturally to Epstein <laughs> and that kind of criminality, but it's not entirely coincidental, is it? And this cult of of male intelligence that that, that Epstein peddled and paid for. Well, I think there's. There's no meaningful uh, uh, connection between uh, Brand and Epstein. I'm not sure if you ever met him. They might have been at a dinner together. But they um, are, you know, connected. That that network. He they, they all knew the same people. I'm not. Again, I'm not yeah, accusing of anything. But it, but but something. It's more than just the zeitgeist shifting, John. Something has gone seriously wrong, hasn't it? Um. Well, I. I tried to uh, sort of describe that shift that Taplin talks about from the original, you know, digital utopian roots to the digital libertarian roots, or the, the digital libertarian sort of what ethos of the, of the modern valley. And I think something has shifted. And I, I, I basically agree with Taplin on that, that there there was a different culture in the valley. I mean, I think if you wanted to describe the pure early valley, valley best, it would be that match between Steve Wozniak who simply wanted to build a computer to share with his friends and Steve Jobs, who understood there was a market there. That and they, was and the they, and, the and they uh, took advantage of the telephone system, which also, again, <laughs> Stuart Brand did the same thing when he was a young man. One of the things that didn't show up as much as I thought it might in the book, uh, John, is Brand's thoughts on de-extinction. He has a very popular TED speech, 2.1 million views this morning, from 2013. How seriously do you take Brand's thinking on de-extinction? Yeah, so that's, uh, let me first talk about why I didn't sort of delve more into that. I wanted to draw a line between what I thought of as biography and what I think of as journalism. And so in terms of figuring out when to end, I actually chose that point where they started that revive and restore organization. It spun out of the long now as the point to stop because I didn't think I could assess it. Um, you know, the earlier stuff that Brand had done was in some kind of a context. But if you take the the Long Now project, for example, it's going to take a couple thousand years to figure out whether it was just a, a, you know, a pipe dream or whether it was something significant. And I think to an extent that's true about Revive and Restore. And I have a different take on, on Revive and Restore. Remember, it's both Revive and Restore. And I'm fascinated with uh, the use of these genetic technologies to attempt to save populations that are endangered by climate change or urbanization or whatever. And that's a big part of what they're doing. So the woolly mammoth has gotten all the attention. Um, I love their effort to support the work to uh, bring back an extinct blue butterfly called the Xerxes in the, uh, in the San Francisco Presidio. That might be the first species that's brought back. Um, I have no ethical qualms about that at all. I think the woolly mammoth might be a different question or might not, but I think trying to restore these ecosystems that have been damaged by modernization, industrialization, urbanization is probably worthwhile. And if they're supporting that, good on them. Your big feature in the Times uh, presents Stuart still as being hopeful, defiantly optimistic in the face of a lot of 
techno pessimism and, and criticism and you connect it with the clock of the long now i have to admit i'm not convinced with the the long now project you write about it in some detail in the book about the, the clock and all the rest of it but but what exactly is it and and how can you do a, a project over thousands of years it might sound cool to Stuart or brian eno but w- what are the concrete well, things involved in it i think there is there is so the, you know they use this example of i think it was uh, o- oxford where the roof of one of their buildings started to wear out and yeah in the middle ages right right there was a forester 600 years previously who had planted a forest that was just now ready to be harvested so i'm, I'm not you know I, maybe i'm not as passionate as those guys but i do no, no, like- I, I get the idea and i mean i guess in a way he, he writes uh, Stuart writes about it in how buildings learn but what is actually being done well so i if you the clock is this extraordinary thing that there's almost complete, you know, they had the luxury of attracting the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, at one point, who funded the development of this. And basically, they hollowed out a mountain on his spaceport of 500 foot deep chamber, and they put a really remarkable uh, mechanical clock in there um, that is basically powered by changes in air pressure. Um, I think you have to wind it to display the time, but it will keep time, ideally, if if uh, everything works out for thousands and thousands of years. Um, they wanted it as a, a provocation or uh, an example uh, in, in this direction of what they call long-term thinking. Uh, but, 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 but is this, again, it's sort of branding and it's all edge. There's no heart of it. So what? Well, uh, so what? I You know, if it creates a sense of responsibility toward uh, future generations. I think that's the so what I, you, you know, I. So that's I, the goal to create a, a clock that lasts forever. And that will encourage people to behave more responsibly. Is that the that point? is, the, the, well, I think to think about the future, I think if they got that far, uh, they, they would, they would consider themselves having ma- made some progress in that direction. Well, um, I hope, uh, I hope. So, you know, he's, right. he, he's at work now on a, another, he, you know, he, he didn't want to write his autobiography, uh, which is why, why I wrote a biography. You wrote it for him. He, he, he's, he's at work on a book on maintenance now. And the notion is that maintenance as a activity is essential to civilization. So that, that's his current project. Does he have any inheritors? Do you think of the tradition? I think of Tim O'Reilly, who's a little bit more responsible shall we say, a little less eccentric. Is there anyone else who's following in that tradition? Well, it's interesting. There are a group of young Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs who've sort of adopted Brand as a mentor. Uh, Patrick Collison at Stripe comes to mind. People who sort of saw Brand as as being a significant thinker and and sort of uh, have, have uh, approached him uh, and spent time with him. So He's got that kind of, uh, you know, following in the valley amongst amongst some of the tech entrepreneurs. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, I hope you're right, John, about um, Stuart Brand still having significance. I, I, I have to admit, I'm not convinced, but I think your book does a wonderful job um, telling the story of a remarkable man. I mean, what, whether you like him or not, whether you approve of him or not, there's no doubt that he had many lives and many of those lives were indeed significant, probably more significant than, than most of us who just have one life. So congratulations <laughs> on the book. Thank um, you. Andrew. 
what else should people be reading in late March 2022, John, in addition to Whole Earth? Well, you know, I just finished uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future, mm. which I think is an important book for a couple of reasons. I mean, he's a climate science fiction writer at this point in his career. And uh, the, the the book opens with a description of a climate catastrophe that I think it's worth reading. And, and you know, he's prescriptive. I mean, it's prescriptive. He, he has some ideas about how we might get out of a, a climate dead end that I think are worth thinking about. And in fact, um, he just gave a talk at at, at, uh, at the Long Now. He attended the, 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 the last COP event and they take some of his ideas seriously, which is kind of interesting that he could play a policy role. Um, and finally, John Markov, author of Whole Earth, uh, based in Silicon Valley, in Palo Alto of all places, right up the road from Stanford University, where Stuart Brown went to university, uh, as well as John Steinbeck for that matter. Uh, John Markov, uh, who, who's in charge? Who runs the world? <laughs> the world is um, sadly a little too decentralized at this moment. I would have to be in the camp that says that no one is running this show and it's a little bit out of control, sadly. It's probably Stuart Brand, right? Many <laughs> of Stuart Brand of his many lives. Yeah, Stuart should should have a little bit more control. It might, it might be helpful to, to some of the some of the conundrum that we're faced with at the moment. 